Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Clubhouse podcast. I am your regular host, Tom Irwin. I'm joined, as ever, by... I mean, I'm not going to call you sort of co-host. Co-host? Assistant host? Steve Carroll, anyway. I'm not sure I like assistant host. There's a level of, I mean, there's a level of superiority that's been suggested there. Assistant to the host. Key pundit. Fountain of all knowledge, Steve Carroll. Anyway, I'm joined by Steve Carroll, who will not be defined by monikers. Um, it's, we've had a week off, haven't we? We did, because you were all watching the Ryder Cup. Yeah, I think it was the right thing to do. We don't want to get swallowed up by the Ryder Cup, do we? We want some, uh, we want some space for, from the clubhouse to breathe. Um, here's one for you. I'm going to just ask listeners of this podcast to make sure they are subscribed to our apple podcast stream and our google podcast stream and um, we changed platform um three or four months ago we have lost some subscribers as a result of that so please make sure you subscribe to the correct channel uh ncg golf podcast on either of those platforms and you'll get updates about every single one of our new podcasts um, I've got some. Uh, I've got a message from our sponsors. So this pod, this podcast is, as ever, sponsored by TaylorMade. It's quite a big week for TaylorMade. You know the Ryder Cup. I've got some stats on uh, their players. How many contracted TaylorMade players playing last week? Do you think? Ooh, I don't know to be honest. Because there'll be some there'll be some non contracted people who choose to play TaylorMade as well. There's a bit of that. Yeah, there's the, a bit of that. How many through the bag um, play the whole lot out of the two teams last week? I'm so and worried to get they? this wrong. And oh, <laughs> now you're making me now you're making me do a quiz. Uh, well, Rory McIlroy's one. That's easy. Rory McIlroy is um, indeed one. I want to say Colin Morikawa is one. I would go ahead and say Colin Morikawa. Yeah, that is very good. One, um, yeah. I want to say Tommy Fleetwood is one. Oh my goodness me! There we go. That's three from three. Um, Tyrrell Hatton? Tyrrell Hatton? No. Scotty Scheffler oh, no. was the other one. Uh, Scotty Scheffler. Oh, look, three out of four is not bad. But they did indeed have quite a lot of non-contracted stuff. So Ricky Fowler was playing um, just the ball under contract. Um, they're all playing TP5 or um, 5X. Um, Bob Mack is using TP5X non-contracted. All of those people are playing Stealth 2 plus Driver, which is interesting, isn't it? So um, they're using the sort of bigger-headed Stealth 2, which makes you wonder why I'm playing using the standard one. And then there's quite a lot of uncontracted wood use. So Stracker's using the Driver and the Fairways. Aberg's using the Fairways. Um, Brooks Kepka, unbelievably, is using a Sim 2 still. Um, Tommy Fleet has got a Burner Mini Driver in. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Have you ever seen one of them? Uh- I really want one of them. Um, I really, I really do. I've, I've always liked the mini driver as someone who struggles with a driver but wants a bit more off their, than their three wood. Um, and I quite like the deep face on it. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I'm really interested in having a look at, look at that club because I think it would really help me and then, on on some courses. Taylor Mode have got some new wedges, MG four. Um, Morikawa and McIlroy both using them, as was Justin Rose with no contract, which is also interesting from a wedge point of view. And he used them to very good effect, didn't he, old Justin? He most certainly did. Aren't you using the plus 
because it's low spin. No, I'm not correct? using I'm not using the plus. I'm using the normal uh, one. I'm just using the stealth two. Yeah, but what what I'm saying is that all these people use maybe you the do plus. need the plus. Yeah, I'm not sure I need the plus. Um, isn't it? I've got to say this. It's an incredible driver. My driving this year, driving has always been the bane of my game, and not this year. Other things are now the bane of my game, as is as is the 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 way with golf. But driving has not been an issue for me this year. Did you enjoy the Ryder Cup? I very much did. I very much enjoyed Europe's victory, even though I um, eschewed the second half of Sunday singles to actually go and play golf. Um, so that's how committed I was. I actually went to play golf instead of just sitting at home watching golf. Um, but I did. I mean, I'm not in this kind of, there's There's been a lot of um, soul-searching and hand-wringing, as there always is on an American side when they lose a Ryder Cup. And some people, some commentators have said, oh, the Ryder Cup's boring because Europe win at home and the USA win away. Well, play better then. I mean, you know, this, this, this Ryder Cup was... Home advantage was very important, I will concede that, but the Americans did not lose this Ryder Cup because of the crowds at Rome. They lost this Ryder Cup because they're absolutely crap at foursomes and got hammered 7-1. That's why they lost the Ryder Cup. Get better at foursomes, lads. Well, they're either crap at foursomes or their captain's crap at picking foursomes pairs. Have you have you seen though that I, I wrote about this as a piece on our website about um reasons why the USA lost 30 years of hurt. How, yeah, how, I, how I, I'm, I'm aware of the piece, yeah. Um and and I wrote a bit about foursomes in there. Do you know how many foursomes games the Americans have won in the last or or how many points to be more correct the Americans have picked up in the last three Ryder Cups held in Europe? There's a total of 24 matches. How many points do you think the Americans have picked up from foursomes in the last three European Ryder Cups? Um, well, did they get one and a half or one this time? Um, they wouldn't have got many in France. Uh, I'll probably go for six. It's, it's even fewer. It's four. They've four. picked up four foursome points in three Ryder Cups. They got beat 7-1 at Glen Eagles. They lost 6-2 in France, and they lost 7-1 at Marco Simone. So they've picked up four foursome points out of 24. You want to you know why the Americans keep losing in Europe? Foursomes. So, I mean, that makes it a bit of a no-brainer that we started with it, right? Absolutely. I think Luke Donald was an excellent captain. People always say that I, when I, people I, win. They do, they do, and he was—he absolutely benefited from the fact that his key personnel were all in form. They were all bang in form, um, and the same obviously can't be said of some of the Americans, some of whom who had five weeks off inexplicably. Um, but they did. Um, Paul McGinley never stopped talking about it. So mm. thanks to Paul for reminding us continually. But. Um, I, I just think that he was he was very calm. Some of his pairings were I mean, his pairing of Rose with McIntyre was absolutely inspired. Not just because it helped McIntyre along, but it also motivated Justin Rose, didn't it? Who played some out of his skin golf for two days. I, I didn't think he still had it in him. It was also um test, testimony to the strength of the union, wasn't it? Showing how uh Sometimes Scotland just needs a little sort of helping hand from the southeast of England to sort of guide it through stormy waters. And better together, aren't we, Steve? 
You said that. <laughs> I'm I'm not annoying. Forty percent of voters in another country. I just thought it was very funny when Justin Rose had his arm around him on the first day, and he's like, "Don't worry, he'll get there. He'll get there." But you're right; it was obviously. And did you hear McIntyre speaking about it yesterday in his Dunhill press conference? Day before in his Dunhill press conference, it was it was pretty cool stuff. That it was it was moving. It was like it was. genuinely moving. Um, it was it, yeah. Um, it even had one of those kind of like Justin Rose signature phrases. But it didn't sound it didn't sound corny at all, did it? It actually sounded like from the heart, we're in this together. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, would you would, 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 would you <laughs> would you take um would you have Luke Donald at Beth Page? I actually think he's he would be quite a good captain at Beth Page because I don't I don't think you want to meet fire with fire in America. You know, the idea was always originally, wasn't it, um Mickelson Poulter. The idea that these two kind of abrasive captains would be perfect in that environment, and I've been to Beth Page. Um, I went there for the um, twenty nineteen PGA Championship, and I can tell you from experience, their fans are loud um, and they don't hold back, and it will be ten times worse at a Ryder Cup. I mean, it's. I remember them. Brooks kept had a little wobble on the back nine on Sunday at Beth Page, and they were giving him absolute pelters. I mean, like proper abuse. Um, so yeah, times I mean, it by, however, a Ryder Cup. But sorry, just to finish the point. Um, I don't think you want to meet fire and with fire there. I think you want from a European side someone who's not going to get swept up in all of that nonsense and who's going to keep a calm head. And I wonder actually whether Donald would be the right guy for that. What is what is brimstone? Presumably the opposite of fire, I don't know. Yeah, so I was going to say, do we, do we want to meet fire with brimstone is what you're saying? Yeah, I, th- I think we do. I, d- I don't think we want... like He's being suggested as the captain. I think the last person you have as captain at Beth Page is Garcia. He is the last person you would... Uh, take so, away the live stuff, right? Just ignore all the live stuff for a second. But like the one person who you think you could wind up as an American crowd, and you might actually give you a reaction and give you exactly what you want, is Garcia, isn't yeah. he? So the I man takes out his frustrations on a bunker. The um, the away captains thing. So over the years, we've had various theories about away captains, um, and I think we do tend to fall on the side of trying to find someone who is um, not polemic with a sort of US audience or even popular in the US. So. I think that was some part of the theory with Harrington last time, wasn't it? I think it was mm-hmm. certainly part of the Clark theory. Um, prior to that, we had a, a, we've also had a Latherbell, we've had Harrington, we've had um, Langer and Faldo as away captains, um, which have all sort of had various degrees of success or otherwise. You'd have to say that the first kind of the last kind of like normal win for us in the US was that Langer team, right? If you sort of and it wasn't a norm and it wasn't a normal win, was it, by any stretch of the imagination? It was an absolute blowout. Yeah, but I mean if you if you skip the sort of miracle of Medina closing the title, um that was that year we fully we did actually outplay them, didn't we? Yeah. Um I'm I always I've been thinking about this as well. I'm not sure core setup it can be such a big thing at Beth Page because Beth Page Black is Beth Page Black. I I don't think anyone would stand for them going and chopping down the rough there, would they? I don't think the fans would stand for it. The point of that golf course is it's incredibly difficult. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I do think that is sort of 
an understated thing about how much how much sway the home team have over the course setup and how much that helps. Because I mean, these days it can it's all down to hitting distances as well and where they, they can put width in that suits teams and all the rest of it. Um, as well, I mean, over here we have this sort of um, gradations of rough, which I think a lot of the um, DP World Tour stalwarts are used to be week in, week out. And in America, they just seem to mow the whole place so you can hit it anywhere and it becomes a point comp. Um, but yeah, that is interesting because it's not that type of venue, is it? Um, but then the same could be said you about... Would, Go on. You, would cast, you would castrate Beth Page if you if you altered it in that fashion. The The whole ethos of that course it's very being is the fact that it's tremendously difficult the sign on the first tee for example you know that, that tells you that only serious players can go and play this golf course if you then mow the entire property um then then it then the course becomes a nonsense and because the golf course is so difficult there are allowances that tilling has made in other parts of the course so i've played beth page right beth page black the greens are not slopey they're pretty flat throughout the golf course there's there's not a huge amount of contour in them and part of the reason for that is is because getting to the green is so damn difficult um so if you then start i mean i i i, I have never hit out a rough like it i first cut a rough that was just like barbed wire yeah you know you'd put a, you'd put a six iron through it right tom off the fairway like a yard off the fairway it would go through it and then you i mean obviously i don't have the strength of these guys um but you, your six iron would would take off and then it would just swan dive out of the air and it wouldn't go anything more than about 120 yards for me because club head speed was decreased so massively going through it you just couldn't get the you couldn't get the momentum through the surface um so the idea that they then just make it hazeltine as they did in you know in 2016 i just think i i would be very very against that it's, a, it's an absolutely classic golf course. It's fantastic that the Ryder Cups go in there. The fact that it's a public golf course is even better because everyone can go and play it and it's affordable. It's incredibly affordable compared to other American public golf. But they've got to play the golf course as we play it or as they play it for a US Open. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, there's a bit of that, isn't there? Um, anyway, we're not here to talk about the Ryder Cup, are we, Steve? We're here to be inspired by the topics the Ryder Cup has brought to the fore. One thing we I haven't was getting shed- back into it, wasn't I? You were a bit, yeah. One thing we haven't scheduled actually, but I did want to ask you about is where do you fall, um, sort of journalistically on the Jamie Weir hat thing? Oh, wow, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I don't know to be honest. Um, how freely can we talk about this? Um, well, because I- as, 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 as an organisation that has found ourselves in a similar position what? in the past, right? Um, I my sort of feeling was, I wonder how he would feel about whether he. It's fine because Europe Europe won, but there was a possibility for a while, wasn't there, that what happened there inspired the United States? It certainly inspired Cantley. Um, he was absolutely mustered from that point on, wasn't he? I mean, he was brilliant on Saturday afternoon. Um, I'm sure we'll get on to Hatgate later on, but he was his player was brilliant. I mean, he birdied 16, 17, 18, I think. Um, he was absolutely fantastic in the Sunday singles as well. I mean, everyone knows he's an amazing player, but it did it did seem to inspire him. Um, and the Americans certainly tried to use it on Saturday night, even before Hatgate, as a kind of 
a kind of Brookline 1999 situation. There was an element of, you know, we're going to feed off this. Or Medina in 2012 when Poulter obviously had his heroics in the back six. Um, so I wonder how you might feel about playing such, possibly playing such a big role in the running of an event. It, luckily, in the end, it didn't turn out that way, did it? But that was my... I don't really have anything to say on on the journalistic merits of the story because I'll always be of the, of the, I'll always fall down on the journalistic side, you know, story's a story, isn't it? Um, that, that's essentially what we're paid for to, to find out this kind of information and display it and tell it and tell the story. But in this 24 hour media world that we're in now, there is also the prospect that you have to think about how will this play with the participants and what what will it do to the running of the event have i've stood on the fence a bit too much there sat on the fence a bit too no, much I, just, I think i think it's sort of an interesting thing to discuss kind of a week on um so steve's alluding to us being on the sort of the wrong side of a Ryder cup pylon um in 2016 when uh pete willett who's danny willett's brother wrote a piece for us um which was kind of poking fun in a very uh Ironic is not the right word, is it? Yeah, I think ironic is the right word. I mean, it, it, it basically it was, created a I mean, pastiche of a, the American golf fan. Um, yeah. And some offence was taken, shall we say, by um, some Americans. And it kind of snowballed and led to um, the issue being addressed by Darren Clark, who's the captain at the time, in his Wednesday press conference. Um, and then ultimately, we don't really know factually, but then Danny Willett was not played on the opening morning four balls, which was always the plan. So it kind of in a kind of um, second-hand way, sort of impacted on the Ryder Cup and the crowds at that particular uh, Ryder Cup were very, very partisan and arguably it kind of contributed to that whole atmosphere. Um, the, the the thing about that particular thing was it was early in the week um, and I, I just thought that the Jamie Weir thing and that are kind of unique to Ryder Cup week. So in 2016, at that point in the week, people are desperate for a story. Everyone's kind of pregnant with anticipation. Um, they have to wait a day longer because the Ryder Cup doesn't start to Friday. The build-up starts 10 days in advance. And nowadays on Sky, we've got kind of wall-to-wall coverage from the Monday. And there's not a lot to say, is there? There's only so many times you can tell people how amazing the atmosphere on the first tee is. Um, so anything that pops up during the week often gets amplified um, beyond the kind of reaches of, any, of anything it has any right to. I thought the Jamie Weird stuff was kind of similar in the sense that the, this year's um, renewal kind of required at that particular point it needed some oxygen, didn't it? Because it was in sort of in danger of falling really flat. Um, so I wonder how much that was kind of it was kind of something that everyone could get their teeth into. So it was like, oh, here's something um, that's going to fire up this Ryder Cup, and that is exactly what happened. Um, I also think it sort of speaks to this. I know it's for the first time this year that there is definitely a much greater connection between the players the spectators and everybody involved and the media and everybody involved in the Ryder Cup than there is almost any other event. So there seems to be much more relaxed rules um, amongst the right holders about things that couldn't be, couldn't be posted on social and access to players seems to be much, much greater. Um, so it did seem to, it did have that feel of being a bit sort of visceral and sort of gloves off to me as a kind of weak. I mean, to be fair to the DP world tour, they're quite relaxed anyway. 
Um, you know, I've had unbelievable access um, at some of the DP formerly European tour events that I've uh, covered, like amazing access that you would never, ever see at the Open, for example, which is obviously a bit more, um, you know, there's a bit more gloves on um, with that tournament. And I, and I think the Ryder Cup on this side of the pond, I, I haven't obviously been to one as media in the United States, maybe in two years. Um, but um, it, it does feel to me that it just continues the overall ethos of the DP World Tour. They do um, content extremely well, don't they? Uh, they understand the importance of content. They're not, they don't, they're not afraid of it. Um, and they don't see it as um, exclusively theirs, I think, either. I, I think they believe that anything that promotes the the European Tour DP World Tour and by that sense the Ryder Cup is worth doing. Um, whoever that may be, um, I think I, I I can only see from my from what I read on Twitter, but I think the PGA Tour is a bit different um, in the way that they believe that the content from their events to be utterly proprietary, as is their right. Um, but I, I do think that um, it's there's much more opportunity here in Europe and on the Ryder Cup to produce this kind of stuff. And it does make it fantastic. I mean, like Matt Chivers, our reporter, who went to Marco Simone, um, was part of a gaggle of, um, of, of journalists that were able to get some time after the event with Rory McIlroy. I mean, like how buzzing was he about that? in our in our streams well because because what's the opportunity to be up close and personal with Rory McIlroy in the immediate aftermath of something as amazing as that um from week to week it just doesn't happen does it there's all kinds of barriers up there whether that's from player themselves or whether that's from agents or whether that's from the from the environment in which they're working so yeah it's a really really special atmosphere a Ryder Cup not just for fans but for for us as well so I think that was I think and that is all to its good, isn't it? I think you just, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's especially good luck when someone who is effectively just trying to do their job in Jamie Ware as a journalist is kind of sort of rounded on by basically everyone. So, like, this is terrible journalism. He's just, he's literally just doing his job, isn't he? But I mean, like, not commenting on the veracity of the story or not, but isn't that just par for the course now? This is just, this is the populist world that we live in now i mean we see it in every part of life not just from sports people you know politicians will say the same thing you know truth is untruth and so on it's all very 1984 and orwellian about it isn't it you know yeah. like facts are not facts anymore i mean i'll give you the example of the at the conservative party conference where i i watch journalist after journalist basically round on these conservative politicians saying you are saying things that are not true and yet still they would trot out the line and I think with a story like this it you never find out until weeks down the line what actually happens because the because in in the heat of that atmosphere in the heat of that battle everyone is always going to go that's not how it is we're united we're very much together you know, we're a team. We've never been more united as the United States. Well, but I mean, hmm. you could you could probably say that what Jamie Wright was like reductive, I guess. But there's obviously something to it because we know that from what um, like people like Shoffley's dad and whoever have said uh, have said since. Um, but yeah, it's just the kind of sort of 
the kind of sneering pylon, I guess, from all all parties that sort of sticks in your core a bit. And then you've had Justin Thomas this week slagging off um, Alan Shipnuck and his and his, some of the excerpts from his book, which also seems peculiar. I mean, like Shipnuck's literally been, to, I think, something like seventy five percent of live events. It's like one of the most well researched things that have been written in the last few years about golf. So to sort of pan it, I think is. It's sort of very wild. Well, they're rounding they're rounding on particular aspects of it, aren't they? By by the look of it, I mean, I, I'm just going on what I've seen on Twitter over the last day or two. But the the players particularly seem to be going for this unnamed sources line. Um, players want to be careful about slagging off unnamed sources because, as a journalist, I can tell you, I would much rather you went on the record than hid behind anonymity. It's a better story if you actually speak out publicly. Um, and people respect it more because there is this kind of idea of, oh, people just make up unnamed sources. Again, populated by a populist, by populist people who are in opposition to media. Um, oh, they've just made that up because they haven't put some name onto it. Rubbish, right? There are very many reasons why people want to be anonymous um, when they are quoted. Some of it because they fear for their job. Some of it because it they need to be protected. Some of it because they're protecting other people. There are many, many reasons for anonymous sources. So players want to be very careful about this unnamed thing because next time I speak to someone like JT or Max Homer or they want to say something perhaps that is a bit out there and they don't particularly want to be named, they'll get a journalist who goes, no, I'm going to name you because that's what you want, isn't it? You don't want unnamed sources. So right, off we go. Gloves mm-hmm. are off. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of these things that so many of the big stories that come out of sporting events nowadays seem to be kind of only loosely related to the sport. Like, kind of gone are the days where the sort of debate is about who got the most points and who played the best and all the rest of it. It kind of, there's a lot, so much of the debate in sport nowadays is about the things that surround it. I mean, like, this week is all VAR, isn't it? Southgate is talking about VAR again this morning. But but that's driven Tom by the audience. So this is another this is another thing that irks me about the way that media is treated. God, I'm going to get on a polemic here. Um, there you'll often see comments now on on stories like this and stories around sports saying stick to the sport or you know you're only doing this for clicks or this is just this is just for attention seeking. Well. One of the great advances of the 21st century is that we can actually see what people are reading. We can actually see it in a number. Um, when I started working in newspapers, you, the only the only feedback you ever used to get from people was the letter, you know, complaining about something you'd done or the person who arrived downstairs in reception. They were the they were the only feedback that you got about about stuff. Uh, and now with with social media and the ability to comment and analytics, not only can we see what people are saying, we can see what they're actually reading as well. Um, one of the things that I always get, that I always used to get, Panfro, is you never do any good news stories. Well, we did. We did plenty of good news stories. The problem was nobody read them. Um, and that, and I, that's the same in our job still now. You know, when you do – when I, I we cover – we try to cover, Tom, don't we, a broad base of subjects – we know there are some things that we write about that are going to get zero page views. We know this, but they're worth doing because they are informative, they add to the debate, or they say something that needs to be said. So we do it regardless of the fact that we know that um, 
we know that people might not click on it. But we also know on the other side of that, that, they're, that we also know what people like to read and they like to read this stuff because they click on it in numbers. So the hypocrisy of it is interesting. I feel like I've gone too yeah, far we, there, but... No, 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 no. I think we sort of like, we know that no one is going to read that Nick Doherty wants to put golf in all schools. Um, but we know that everyone wants to read that Pat Perez's missus wants to punch Roy McIlroy in the face. Like, it's... I can't. That is a kind of very good recent example, isn't it? It is. And it's the tabloid example, and you know, for for those people who get upset about it, well, well, the way to change the narrative is to stop reading the other stuff and start reading the other stuff, and then because we can see what analytics are saying, you know, the, we'll soon we'll soon go down that line. Yeah. Um, well, that was an interesting sort of unscheduled debate. I'll tell you what else, which kind of, if, whilst we're going off topic. It's the this Lexi Thompson business this week who's playing in a PGA Tour event. And that that is similar, is but that is similar, isn't it? In the sense that um, the the rights holders or the sponsors of that event have obviously concluded with the best will in the world that that event needs some oxygen and it needs something to kind of give it a bump and get people talking about it. It's the week after the Ryder Cup. Um, the golf season is kind of in its kind of fall period. PJ Tours wrap around, but we know that this is kind of when it quietens off slightly. Um, so events at this time of the year kind of need a kind of PR boost. Um, so they've invited Lexi Thompson, who's obviously an exceptional um, Solomon Cup player, PJ Tour stalwart, major winner, um, to come in on a sponsor's invite. Um, and there'll be lots and lots of people who'll be putting their hand up and saying, this is brilliant for women's golf. It's giving um, one of the best female players in the w- world, like the big exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And there'll be other people who will be saying it's it's just a PR stunt and um, kind of almost patronising, I guess, to the LPGA players. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know what side of the debate you fall on because we haven't talked about talking about this. I'm going to watch it. You're going to watch have, it? I, I wouldn't have watched it. Um, I've no interest usually in watching PGA Fall Series event because um, there's no, there's no, especially this year because there's really no incentive for anyone in the top fifty to play in it. Um, with the way that they're restructuring the PGA Tour, I mean, there are no FedEx Cup points I think for top fifty players um, from the um, FedEx rankings. So the whole the whole point of the series is to kind of draw up to the restructured PGA Tour season that starts, I think, in January. Um, so there will be no other reason for me to watch it, but I will watch it now because I'm interested to see how she does. She's ob- she's obviously a unbelievable player, um, and I hope she makes a cut. It would be amazing. She's not the first LPGA player. She wouldn't be the first LPGA player to make a cut in a men's event. I think, it, I think Hannah was saying in the office yesterday, Babe Zacharias in 1945, but it probably wasn't the PGA Tour then. PGA Tour didn't exist then, but but she made the cut in a male golf event, and um, yeah, I, I I hope she does it. I think it will be. It, 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 I thought so, I thought Sorensen had as well, to be honest with you. No, I don't think I don't think Annika did. Um, she played in some, but I don't think she made the cut. And Michelle, obviously Michelle Wee West as she is now, got very very close, didn't she? She missed by a shot. I think the last player to have a go was Brittany Lincecum. Um, sort of five years ago, I want to say. Um, but I mean, yeah. I will, I will watch the event. I wouldn't have watched the so, event. So I suppose, from the sponsors' point of view, it's job done, right? 
Well, that's kind of what I'm driving at. So anybody who's critical of it on social media will get absolutely panned and called a misogynist and blah, 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 blah. And they kind of, they kind of count, I guess the practical counter arguments for it are that she is taking the place of um, a regular PGA Tour member um, who's paid their subs and is desperate for starts, et cetera, et cetera. And there's quite a lot of journeyman pros who this part of the season will be really important to them from an income point of view. But it, that's um, a so misnomer that, of an argument. It's a misnomer yeah, I, of an argument, though, because they're sponsors' places. So then these yeah. places never go to that that kind of player because they're sponsors' exemptions. That's the point of them. Yeah, so I agree with that. I think that that is that is kind of um, misrepresentation of it, and it's it's kind of not understanding. It's the spon- it's at the sponsors' discretion, and we've seen before that they've invited um, NBA players or NFL players or whatever else for exactly the same reason. And I totally get that um, the sponsor wants to get eyeballs on their event. So you sort of understand it as a, a sort of mechanism for that. I think uh, what I don't particularly like about it is the conflation between that and it being something that is being done to sort of assist um, women's golf, which it isn't. And I think that is the unfortunate thing about it is that it kind of ticks a box, I guess, in people's heads. Oh, that's great. Look, because now, the LPGA is getting some exposure and we were able to see on um, primetime telly alongside the men how, how good these uh, women are, um, which I understand could be a positive. It also could fall flat on its face. I think what well, I am not a woman, you might have noticed, but I think if I was somebody who was um, trying to drive participation in that area, I'd be sort of frustrated by it and thinking, well, this is great, but it's surely it's time to do something that's just more comprehensive um, and it's more more strategic and it's driven by the rights holders, it's driven by governing bodies to say, actually, now the time has come that we're going to put women alongside men, we're going to have events at the same time, they're going to be on TV at the same time and something much more fundamental. This feels like um, sort of tokenism to me if, if people are saying it's being done um, for sort of participation reasons or to try, try and boost the profile of women's golf. I think it feels like tokenism. Um, and it feels like something that sort of a trick that's been done before. So I think that is that is where I sort of fall on it, is that it's kind of like great. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's like an oddity. It's like something that you probably would tune in and watch a little bit of it or look out for the result and all power to them for, for pulling off a PR stunt. But to try and say it's something that is, being done to assist women's golf. No, I don't think that's true. Mm. Mm. Was that right? Do you think? Yeah. Anyway, back to the topic. So we wanted to talk about a couple of things we think came out of the Ryder Cup week last week. So there's a couple of rules controversies, weren't there? We certainly tried to make them into controversies. And, and got roundly abused on social media for, for using the word controversy. I mean, they... Were there controversies? I mean, there were, there were only controversies in the sense that the players involved asked for second opinions, which are actually, they're more than within their rights to do that. Um, I don't mind. I mean, a referee does not have to allow a second opinion, right? Um, it's clearly stated in the rules of golf. Referee's decision is final. If the referee allocated to a match makes a decision. Um, that decision is final, right? Um, it, there, there are some are some areas where it can be altered um, if it turns out to be incorrect. But a referee doesn't have to allow a second opinion. Now, in practice, it doesn't hurt, actually, um, because it can relieve tension. Um, I have done it 
in events that I have um, refereed. In the open qualifying, for example, um, I had a player who um, was in a drainage channel and um, they were, uh, it was, it was um, in the general area, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't closely mown. And the, the local rule that we had in place that week said that um, relief from drainage channels had to be in fairway or closely mown areas. So I was explaining this to the player and they asked for a second opinion. I, I said, fine, got a referee, another referee on the line. Referee confirmed what I said. Player was happy, just diffused a bit of tension, right? So, so I have no issue. Um, the players asking for a second opinion, but but in these, so we had two at the same time. Actually, it was all part of the same incident, all in in the game involving um, Jordan Spieth and um, Justin Thomas, um, and it was a case of um, whether a ball was embedded or not, and then um, a ball hitting a player, um, uh, at Justin Thomas, in fact, as he uh, as he sort of lost balance following his stroke yeah so it's that one that i wanted to talk about so there is that sort of wider point i mean i don't when you hear and again sort of we talked about it earlier about the kind of access at the Ryder cup those kind of kind of intimate moments when there is a ruling and the cameras are right there and all the players what the players are saying are being picked up on the mic they're obviously um some of the most fascinating um parts of any sort of tv coverage it does sort of expose the fact that the players are sort of desperate to try and use the rules to their advantage. And again, some people would fall on various sides of this debate, but it, it's quite. It is, I think it's quite a, a jarring thing to hear players kind of um, debating the ruling with an official, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've no, I have not, no issue they, with this. I have no issue with players use use the rules to your advantage if you can. There's this weird kind of thing I see it at club level all the time. You know, this kind of oh well, he's he's bending the rule or he or she's bending the rules there to their advantage. Well, the rules allow it. So use the rules to your advantage. There are going to be plenty of, of, of times in this game of golf where rules are going to punch you in the face. So when you can use them to your advantage, do so. There's nothing wrong with that. They're written in that way for a reason. Yeah, fine. Um, I just think that it's kind of, it's not... I think it's a strange thing. It's almost kind of unique to... Um, I guess to tour golf or to golf generally is that there is the time for that to happen. So in in normal sport, should we say? Um, who is it that talks about normal sport on Twitter? We're in a book called Normal Sport, isn't it? It was slagging golf off. Can't remember what his name is. He's an American journalist. He's good anyway. Um, so if it, in the embedded ball thing, when the referees come over and sort of said, "No, that's not an embedded ball," and then there's a conversation where the players go, well, "I think it might be embedded for these reasons." Yeah. It's all done in a, in a kind of civilised way and obviously you understand why they do it and they're trying to make sure the rules being interpreted and applied correctly. But really, they ought to just be saying, okay, fine, because the ref has said it. Like, and if it, if it happens in like in rugby, where the dialogue between the referee and the player is similarly, similarly civilised and rugby is also a game with nuanced rules that are very open to interpretation, um, there's, there is no debate, is there? The re- the referee gives the ruling and then the players get on with it. They don't stand there and go, mm, I don't think he was offside. But I, I think some of these things, um, what's the words I'm looking for? With an embedded ball, for example, um, it's, qu- you, it's quite hard, actually, um, 
to work that one out because ball's got to be obviously so for a ball to be embedded right part of the ball has to be below the level of the ground that doesn't mean it has to be stuck in the soil it just means it has to be below the level of the ground so if the ball's just touching the grass for example it's just sitting down in the grass that's not embedded but even if the ball is not touching the soil if part of it is embedded in its own pitch mark and that's below the level of the ground then that ball can be embedded right well that's quite technical that's quite that's quite a technical thing and that involves especially in this incident where you where you've got long grass right that involves a bit of working out it involves probably putting a marker down picking up the ball feeling around to see if the if the if where the pitch mark is is below the level of the ball so i don't mind a second opinion in that in that sense and i don't mind players asking the question of a referee and saying well are you sure about this because i think it might be below the level of the ground and at the end of the day it was resolved and they played the ball as it lied didn't they well i think i do have an issue with it because i think if that that like you the referee's not there to offer an opinion. He's there to offer an effect. He's the po- he's the point of truth. You said it yourself. The referee, once he's done his ruling, that's it. Yeah. So the, and the and he could have like, said he could have said no. That's it. I've made my decision. Get on with it. And the players would have got on with it. And the players did get on with it. So I've, I've no yeah. I've no real issue with it. I mean, I've no real issue with what happened in that respect. Well, I've no think- I've no issue, Tommy, with the other thing either, actually. I think the optics of it aren't great, and I think if, it, if it's one of these things where if that isn't Justin Thomas or Jordan Speed, then it's Patrick Reed, then the conversation is totally different, isn't it? And people are saying, "Oh, typical Patrick Reed so, trying to bend the rules." But I think this comes down to like, what do you, what do you think a referee is there to do? Um, I see my role as a referee when I am when I am refereeing an event. I don't see I don't see my role there as to enforce the rules it obviously is but my rule is my role there is to help players with the rules of golf and i'll try and help a player as much as i can you're you're bound by what you can do within the rules of golf but you try and i see my role as a referee to try and assist players not to necessarily be fist down it's my way or the highway now eventually you get to that point but there's a process that towards that if that makes sense yeah, I just think, yeah, I just think in it, because it's all sort of like done in polite language, everyone thinks, oh, that's that's fine. In actual fact, it took five minutes and it really should have been, no, it's not embedded, off you go. Anyway, the, other, the more interesting thing in that particular ruling, I think, was the when the ball hit Justin Thomas, because nobody had any idea, really, what was how to proceed from that point, did they? No, it's it a dead easy as well. No, it's a dead easy rule as well. But, the, but this just shows you, I think... Um, I mean, the the rules are big, right? The, I've got the official guide out in front of me at the moment. It's like 560 pages with all its committee procedures and clarifications in there as well. I mean, you know, even though golf is in its sense, in a sense, a very, very simple game, hit the ball, try and get it in the hole. Um, there are lots of things that can happen around it. And even though the rules have been simplified, um, there are still lots of them. Um, and they are still voluminous, but this was this was a fairly simple rule. I think part of the issue for a lot of people was this is a relatively recent change, so the outcome for this for what happened with Justin Thomas would have been different prior to 2019, and there are still a lot of people who 
because they've been in golf for a long, long time and they've played golf for a long, long time, the pre-2019 rules are still very familiar in their heads. Um, and while we're getting there with the, with, with the 2019 rules, it'll still take it'll still, still take some time to bed in. But this one's a dead easy one. It's rule 11.1a and basically says if a player's ball in motion accidentally hits any person, including the player, there's no penalty and you play as it lies. Well, I mean, there was no absolutely... I saw people trying to say he kicked the ball. I saw people trying to say that he stepped on the ball. I mean, like if you watch it in real time and if you watch it in slow motion, what actually happens is the same thing. He smacks it out of the rough. He loses his balance. And as he loses his balance, the ball is still moving. He kind of just yeah. basically flicks the ball with his foot. It is absolutely a ball in motion accidentally hitting him. So there's no penalty. Play as it lies. Amazing, Even wasn't it? Because like, quite a lot of the commentary team, well, no one on the commentary team knew the rule. They all thought it was loss of hole. I thought it was loss of hole, actually. I, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I couldn't actually see any situation where it actually would be loss of hole, even pre-2019, unless it was, unless it was proven that he had deliberately deflected the ball. I mean... I looked. I looked in the old rules to the old rule nineteen point two. Now I am not an expert in the pre twenty nineteen rules of golf. They are they are they are a mystery to me in terms of language and the way they're put together. But I did have a look at this, and pre twenty nineteen, I think he would have picked up a one stroke penalty. He, he wouldn't have been loss of hole. The only the only the only thing I could see for for, for loss of hole was if he deliberately kicked it, which he clearly didn't. So, um, yeah. Anyway, it was all it was all good stuff, and again, like it it was brilliant that all of all of those things were sort of re- resolved amicably, actually. Um, and Justin Thomas did tons to justify his pick, didn't he? The um, the other thing I think that I wanted to talk about that came out of last week is just is is the kind of role of caddies in golf. Um, so the kind of the incident involving Patrick Cantlay and his hat, uh, and Joe LaCarver, his caddy, who um, is obviously. I don't know if it, would you still describe him as Tiger Woods's permanent caddy, or normally caddies for Tiger Woods, or previously caddied for Tiger Woods. Previously, I think I think he's now Cantlay's man. Okay, so he's he's caddied for Tiger Woods. He's kind of a sort of um, very very experienced PGA Tour caddy, caddied for some of the best players in the world. Um, and he was obviously involved in this incident on the 18th green, which I'm not sure any of us fully understand quite what went on, but. Broadly speaking, it was felt they overstepped the mark in terms of um, the gesticulating and his interaction with McElroy, who still had a putt to halve the match on the 18th green. Um, and then we've obviously all seen the video clips of McElroy obviously took huge offence to it and it led to sort of a car park altercation between uh, McElroy and Bones Mackay, who is um, Mickelson's long-term caddy and now retired and now pundit on uh, NBC. No, he's Justin Thomas's caddy. Justin Thomas's caddy, sorry. Um, so, and it, I just thought it was again a sort of very interesting kind of uh, window into how the kind of what happens when something controversial happens and the various different protagonists in that controversy and how they behave and the kind of um, the reversion to type. I think, and to me, it was kind of like it got me thinking about the kind of role of caddies in golf. Full stop. Um, and the kind of golf's uneasy relationship with the sort of caddy element. It's a very unique thing to golf, isn't it? I can't think of any other sport where there's a sort of similar similar role to caddy. No. 
I'd need to have a think about it, but not off the top of my head. So we get so as an amateur golfer, like I don't know if you, um, if you if you if you let's say you go into a corporate day, right, and it's a work invite, and there's the opportunity to have a caddy, would would you sort of would you routinely accept it? No. Why not? No, but that's but that's down to me. That's because of my personal foibles. I've I've had a caddy um, at some of these type of events. Um, and they've been extremely nice people and genu- and genuinely helpful and their knowledge of the golf course which they serve is is tremendous but they just make me, they personally make me feel too self-conscious about my game um i'm messed up in the head enough when it comes to golf without feeling like i have to perform for somebody else as well um and i'm just i, I just prefer to like be rubbish on my own rather than you know like i i, I I'm self-conscious enough when I hit a, when I hit my own bad shots. Never mind if I hit bad shots in front of other people. It's it would just be I'm 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 completely psycho in this respect, unfortunately. But it is how I feel, you know. If I if I have the opportunity, if it's a choice, I'll never take one. I'll always just I'll always just play by myself. Yeah, so I think I think as an amateur golfer, it's a very we need to be careful, don't I? Because you have you've obviously caddied for me in the relatively recent past, but. Um, I think in that in that environment where you're taking a caddy um, who you've never met before, um, and it's a kind of transactional relationship, so you're paying for that service um, and and often expected to tip. Um, and people would say it's like incredible, and they get kind of lots of kind of inside knowledge about the course that they're playing or whatever else. To me, it's like hugely uncomfortable because you, but you someone is physically carrying your stuff for you, which is like a really weird thing, isn't it? So. Like if you get out of the golf environment, can you imagine sort of hiring someone to carry your shopping bags around for you for three hours? Like it's a particularly peculiar sort of thing that we think is acceptable. So there's that kind of like um, the sort of servant element to it, which is obviously like deeply uncomfortable. Um, and then I think in that env- in the environment that, I'm, that we're talking about, when a, a kind of club golf is using it, you then into like some very uncomfortable conversations where you've got a caddy trying to read your putt who's like with the be- in the best will in the world trying to give you the correct line but has no real idea how you put or um, what sort of pace you're um, comfortable putting out or whether you're going to try and hold it or you're just trying to lag it or whatever else. Um, and then I also often feel that you're sort of duty-bound to hit it on the line that you've been told, even though you might totally disagree with the line you've been told. Um, and it all becomes very confusing. So I find it difficult from a kind of, a playing point of view to um to know what sort of face to pull and know how to sort of interact with a caddy that's my sort of experience of it yeah i mean i i i th- i like to i like to carry my own bag um it's a it's a very personal thing to me um i know that caddying is hugely popular particularly with the american audience i've been to a lot of these prestige courses um and they absolutely love the experience of it you know they love um Having that kind of expert knowledge at their at their fingertips, and 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 on greens in particular, I mean, I have had I had a we had a four caddy when I played at Sawgrass, and he was an absolute wizard on the greens. And he just said, "Hit it here," and I just hit it there, and it went in the hole, and it was absolutely amazing. Um, but I've also had experiences where um, how can I, I'm going to try and be delicate here, where you know a. a, a a caddy has told me to hit a particular club, for example, quite early in a round, and I know because I know my yardages, right? 
Um, it's, I know a lot of club golfers don't. I know my yardages to the yard. I know exactly how far I hit my clubs, you know. And then um, he's he's saying to me, "We need to hit this club," and I'm in my head going, "No, I really don't want to hit that club because I know how far I hit this club, and it's not going to get there." And and then that I think, especially when you're playing a prestige course, that just adds a bit of doubt into your mind. And if it goes great, fantastic. But if it doesn't go great, you know, I can have a propensity sometimes on a golf course to sulk um, when things aren't going well. And I just would, I, I and it's just me personally, um, I would just prefer to strip all of that out of it. I'd like the only person to blame to be me. <laughs> Do you know? Um, but, you know, I have, fr- I have, I have friends who... Um, I have friends who are who are caddies, um, and um, they perform an absolutely admirable service. And for those people that request that service and enjoy it, all power to them. I would say um, it adds something to golf, right? Just because I choose not to go down that path is irrelevant. Um, the whole, you know, the whole um, prospect of being able to go to a fantastic club like Troon or like Kings Barnes and to be able to get into the whole kind of experience of um, having a caddy, oh, it's St Andrews as well. Having a caddy and, and going round and, and benefiting from that expert advice is absolutely stellar for some people. And I would never ever want to, um, I'd never ever want to rid them of that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I've had some good experiences. Like we had a brilliant caddy uh, this year at Sawgrass, and I was Cy- lucky enough to play Cypress Point on my honeymoon, um, however many years ago it was, eleven or twelve years ago, maybe more. Um, and we had a caddy called Surfer Dave, who's kind of part of the institution, I think, at Cypress Point. And he was exceptional, like sort of tales of who he'd caddied for before and kind of knew the course intimately. So I don't I, I don't disagree that you can, uh, it can be kind of experience enhancing. Um, and I guess that's sort of part of the, um, the kind of American culture is that they do think it's adding to the experience. Um, I think I'm very much in the camp. I just prefer to carry my own stuff, like you say, and, and make my own mistakes. Um, I think that the, what happened at the Ryder Cup was kind of interesting in terms of the tour's relationship with caddies. Um, because but over the years, I think there's, been, there's a huge amount of kind of massive extolling of the virtues of certain kind of almost celebrity caddies. And you, like there's people like Bruce Edwards, who was kind of Tom Watson's long-term caddy and kind of immortalised in um, Caddy for Life, the Feinstein book. And it's like, which is like just a beautiful, beautiful story about... Um, Two people obviously had a connection and a kind of um, a lifetime together that went beyond the sort of the bag carrier um, relationship. And then you've got kind of more sort of fabled things like Tip Anderson, the kind of um, famous St. Andrews caddy, I think caddy for Palmer, Daniel, was it Nick, caddy for Nicholas in Opens at St. Andrews. Um, these things are kind of part of the game's fabric, right? They're kind of part of the um, this, its storied history and and have played big parts in in sort of big moments in in golf in golf's history and i think sort of in the more modern day you've had people like steve williams and you've had people like uh, billy foster who are kind of again they've kind of like been been on people's bags at big moments helped players out in, in big moments and i think that often um uh tour players and the tour are, are kind of very happy to talk about um, a team and in, in victory they're happy to talk about a team and often if people win nowadays 
they will talk about it's not you know it's me hitting the shots but i couldn't do that without the support of my physio my psychologist etc and the caddy's right at the sort of um the center of that and they will talk about them being kind of um on course support in terms of being providing them with um emotional support providing them with strategic support etc etc um I just think that that quickly those words quickly become hollow when something goes wrong and they quickly quickly turns to they're just a caddy. And I think there was an element of that on on Sunday where Joe LaCarva, like as we said at the start, is one of the most respected caddies on tour and he's he's kind of been around the block. Um and we're in the middle of a sort of very visceral sort of Ryder Cup match, um, which is kind of where the, the Cantley controversy is being played out. Um, and in the in the, in the eyes of the world, I think most people fell on this side of the argument. Uh, Lacava sort of overstepped the mark, and people were saying, "What on earth does he think he's doing? He is just a caddy." And that that to me is just sort of that. I think that's the sort of underbelly of it, and it makes you you makes you wonder about all the other stuff and the sort of colour and the and the the celebration of caddies when things are going well. That it makes those words sound quite hollow because. Lacava is either part of the scene, he's part of the playing team, he's he's is as relevant as the player, or he isn't. I don't think you can have it both ways. Um and I just wonder that whether if his behaviour had been replicated by a player, whether McElroy's reaction and whether the crowd reaction and then whether the social media reaction would have been the same. And actually more would more people have fallen on the side of what on earth does McElroy do think he's doing, carrying on a fight in the car park. So I think it just sort of it brought to mind like what actually is a caddy and how central to the whole piece are they? And I don't know, like it, it's I, don't, I think it sort of exposes that. It's like what what is a caddy? Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's something to think about there, isn't there? What should they even exist? Well, that's kind of that's where I'm getting to. It's like I don't think you can have this both ways because you're either saying that this is a partnership and a caddy is helping the player out with yardages, it's helping out with club decisions, it's helping keeping his player calm. Um, if the player is, um, if we allow the player to indulge in gamesmanship um, and kind of, I don't know, slow walking between holes to make players wait or as Seve famously did, coughing at inopportune moments, if that is kind of like... Um, for want of a better word, shithousery, which we kind of don't celebrate in sport, but we definitely see as part of it. Like if the player can do that, then surely the caddy can do that because they're they're part of the team. And it just, it's, that's what I'm driving at, is they're either sort of part of the team with these kind of sort of special privileges um, and contributing to the result in any way they, fi- in, in, in all of the same ways the players have, or they're not. I, I had no particular um, problem with, Lacava celebrating. Um, I had no particular problem with the hat waving. I think where it got a bit silly was when he then had the when he when he then had the contact with McElroy. Um, and at that point he is becoming part of he's becoming part of proceedings, right? Because McElroy's whether he whether you argue whether he'd actually got into his routine or not, he was preparing to get into his routine. And at that point, I think it becomes an issue. And I personally would have had the same issue if Cantley had done it, right? If it had been the player who had done it, I would have had exactly the same issue, right? You know, you've had your time, right? You've celebrated it. Fine. Now get out of the way. 
Um, and and I think that was the issue for me. Like it all became sort of wound up in the same thing. Should he have been waving his hat? Should he have been celebrating? I, I thought all of that stuff was fine until there's the there's the verbal contact with McElroy, and then Lacava goes back in, right? Um, and and I think at that point, that's when it becomes it becomes a, a, an issue. And I would have felt the same about it if that had happened with a player, or whether it happened with a caddy. It wouldn't have made any difference to me. I would have said, "Look, now you're interfering in the playing of the game. Get out of the way." But so let, let's say it is a player who's done it, um, and the sort of you covered this in stuff you've written. But the beauty of the Ryder Cup is it's it's the only golf event where the fans are fully into it. There's football chants. The atmosphere is kind of rarefied and it's all just kind of um, on the edge all the time. It feels sort of feeble, doesn't it? Um, so if if that's a player, right, and he's giving McElroy some stick, an opportunity where he's going to, um, well, presumably he's done it because either he's like lost his mind a bit or because he thinks he's going to uh, create an advantage for him, then... Is that not all fair in love and war? Like this, this sort of thing happens in football all the time, where oh, well, players will be poking each other. Yeah, but this isn't football, Tom. Remember, this is golf. It's a, it's a gentle game. It's a game of honor. But, it's a game, etc., etc., etc. But that's that's not what that's not. People are buzzing at the Ryder Cup because it isn't like that. That's precisely what they like about it. And it, and then all of a sudden we start drawing lines. So I, I don't think you're right. I think that if that had been a player, people would have been saying. Let's it's it's the Ryder Cup. Get on with it. I think it's because it's a caddy. People are like sniffy about it and say, "Yeah, you've overstepped the line there, mate." I don't think you. Well, I know you do understand it, but the power of clicks and the power of clickbait would have amplified it if it had been a player as well as a caddy. It would absolutely have happened. Right. We'll have to end on a disagreement, won't we? I don't like ending well, on an argument. We've covered a lot of ground today, Steve. Sort of like a deep intellect, maybe not. Feels like we've had a quite intellectual conversation. Anyway, I've now got to go to a, a governing body meeting, which starts in seven minutes. Better get off the line. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I'd be really interested to hear your views on anything we've talked about today. And goodness me, haven't we talked about a lot? Please do make sure you subscribe to the correct podcast channel. Uh, and drop us a line if you've got anything you'd like to hear us talk about or anything, any views on today's podcast. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, Tom. See you next time.